Welcome to a very special presentation of 5 to 4. Last week, we guested? Is that... Yeah, I think guested. Yeah, we guested. Last week, we were guests on Know Your Enemy, an extremely good podcast about the conservative movement to discuss the conservative legal movement and sort of its genesis, the genesis of some of its underlying ideas like originalism and textualism, the development of the Federalist Society and things like that. Uh, and the episode turned out so good that we wanted to share it with our listeners yeah. so that if you're not a listener of Know Your Enemy, which you probably should be, that you could listen and enjoy yourself. But really, the goal was to steal their listeners for us. That's also That's true. Right. But we sounded great. <laughs> right. We did sound incredibly smart. So. Thank you for that editing, Know Your Enemy. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, if you are a 5-4 listener, you definitely will enjoy Know Your Enemy. And if you are a new listener to 5-4 because you were a Know Your Enemy listener... Welcome. Yeah. And we cuss more than they do. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're cooler. Yeah. We were on our best behavior, I think, on their podcast. Brace yourself. I didn't say the F word one time. You were great. But yeah, we're sort of the bad boys of legal podcasting. That's right. <laughs> you know, I don't mean to brag. <laughs> Thanks to uh, Matt and Sam over at Know Your Enemy for having us. It was super, super fun. And it's definitely one of the smarter conversations I've had uh, in 2020. Yeah, agree. <laughs> agree. Enjoy. All right. Well, welcome to Know Your Enemy 5 to 4 crew. Hey. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. We're really excited for this. I'm a huge fan of 5 to 4. Uh, I've listened to every episode. And uh, if our listeners aren't uh, fans of yours yet, I hope they will become fans after this episode. That's very kind. Thank, well, thank you. you. Yeah. We, we made it. We're making a huge mistake by inviting funnier and more intelligent people onto our podcast <laughs> i was i was about yeah, to yeah. i was about to ask if there was going to be like some sort of air horn sound to introduce <laughs> us you know kind of right <laughs> bow, 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 bow. <laughs> the final countdown yeah. please <laughs> right. yeah it's really stupid we're like telling people like oh you like listening to like in-depth analysis of like conservative ideas from like smart charming people you should listen to that. You should listen to Five Four instead of our podcast. Um, yeah, but uh, but yeah. To begin with, because our listeners have complained about it, even amongst the two of us, would each of you just say your names, introduce yourselves, before we get started here? Yeah, uh, sure. I am Peter. Also, the Law Boy. <laughs> yeah, Twitter's right. the Law on, Boy. On Twitter, <laughs> I am the Law Boy. A couple yes. years ago, I decided to choose the name on Twitter, the Law Boy, and. Here it I haunts am, him. just <laughs> dragging it behind me like a... Peter, <laughs> I, I, I addressed your uh, Christmas present to Twitter's The Law Boy, oh. so yes. keep an eye out for that <laughs> in the mail, buddy. <laughs> and I'm Rhiannon. I'll be easy to distinguish, I think, by not being a man on this podcast. And uh, my name's Michael. Happy to be here. 
Yeah. Well, welcome again. You know, for our listeners who aren't familiar with the five to four podcast, um, it's really, you know, when you listen to an episode, um, uh, Leon Nafok does the little introduction. He says, it's a podcast about how much the Supreme, Supreme Court sucks. Uh, <laughs> that's the tagline. But maybe to begin with, you could just tell us about the basic perspective you offer on the show. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we're a legal podcast, and I think we can be described broadly as sort of um, leftist critique of Supreme Court cases. Um, and I think it started as Peter's idea, but it just came out of like not really seeing our way of thinking and, and talking about Supreme Court jurisprudence and the conservative legal project. Like we didn't see that reflected back at us from, you know, mainstream media doing legal analysis, even from um, supposedly like liberal outlets. And, you know, there's just no space where people weren't just parroting what the Supreme Court and the American judiciary as an institution say about says about itself, which is, you know, that judges are objective, they're nonpolitical, they're not ideological, and they're decision makers who, you know, sort of divine a correct answer out of legal questions you know, that legal problems are are not only sort of like objectively solvable, but also that there's this special class of people, you know, the judge who is specially equipped to answer, you know, uh, legal questions because nine justices on the Supreme Court have the right objective tools to do that work. And I think like even more broadly, we're, we're critiquing like legal formalism. Um, and our philosophy or like the perspective sort of flows, I think, from, from legal realism, which just, uh, refers to the idea that like law derives from prevailing social interests and public policy. It's, it's not static. It's ideological. It's political. And judges shouldn't just be looking at abstract rules when they're deciding a case, but they should also be considering like social interests, public policy, material realities. That kind of thing. Yeah, it's a it's a really wonderful uh, sort of demystification of the Supreme Court. And, you know, obviously, know your enemy, we have a fairly, you know, we try to be fair minded, but it's, you know, ultimately, we're very critical of, you know, the right and the conservative movement, the post-war U.S. conservative movement, especially. Um, and I found listening to your podcast, it's made me even more cynical than I was before about the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Part of the ongoing project with the podcast is to like unstick any remaining little bits of, <laughs> of, of Matt's sympathy to the conservative <laughs> right, movement. Right. <laughs> right. That's right. Just let it go, Matt. Just yeah. let it go. So you guys, so I'm thankful to you guys for participating in that project. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that might actually lead into another question, which is, um, you know, I think just to, you know, confess my sins here, being the bad Catholic that I am, I probably credited the conservative legal movement with a little bit more kind of intellectual rigor and sophistication than I might have the broader conservative movement. Yeah. Um, you know, Antonin Scalia taught at the University of Chicago, you know, some of the people you talk about on the show, you know, they are distinguished legal figures. And there is a kind of competency we see with, say, the people who work for the Federal Society, mm -hmm. and the kind of organizational prowess they bring to it. So I kind of had a maybe higher opinion of uh, the conservative legal movement than I did other parts of conservatism. Um, 
But really, one of the things that courses through the show, your show, you know, every episode's most episodes are about a particular case. Um, but there's also a broader story you're kind of telling about the rise of conservative legal thinking. And I wondered if uh, one of you might sketch that for our listeners too. kind of where yeah. when we think of originalism or the Federal Society, these terms and phrases, organizations, institution, institutions, you know, particular jurists we think of, most of the cases you look at are fairly recent in the last, what, 30 or 40 years, probably. So where the people you're criticizing and demystifying, where did that movement come from? Where did the conservative legal thinking, where did it originate? When did it originate? And do it, what's the kind of story you're telling in your podcast? It's a horror story, <laughs> <laughs> to just put a genre on it. <laughs> the, the conservative legal project, as it is constructed today, is about 50 years old um, and sort of arose similar and parallel to the broader conservative movement as a reaction to the liberal gains of the mid-century. Before that, conservative legal thought was a little more atomized, a little bit inchoate, it coalesced primarily around sort of disparate ideas uh, like states' rights that like tracked with the conservative political project, but you know they weren't particularly wedded to any underlying framework. Uh, and then you have the Supreme Court of the mid-century under Earl of Warren mm -hmm. start to actively engage in furthering civil rights, uh, protecting minority rights, expanding defendants' rights, voting rights, uh, finding a right to contraception, and then to abortion in Roe v. Wade in 1973. And conservative legal circles are just sort of reeling. Uh, and there's a sense on the right that this is sort of ivory tower judges, right, imposing their, uh, you know, the activist judge line, right, that they are sort of imposing their, mm -hmm. their will on the rest of us. And conservative legal academics actually sort of feel the same way. And they're thinking like, look, this is, this is ridiculous, right? How can all of these sort of newly popular ideas be protected by the Constitution, this 200-year-old document? Right. And mm -hmm. that basic complaint leads them to solidify their articulation of originalism. Um, and originalism is just a legal framework that is built on the idea that our interpretation of the Constitution should be tied to its original intent or original meaning rather than have it having it be what's called like a living constitution, which is, you know, a document whose meaning sort of evolves with the times. And originalism sort of I mean, who are the people who are propagating that idea and why why does it serve the kind of reactionary purpose that it's being kind of enlisted into? Because there is a way in which I think the success of these conservative legal figures um, originalism makes a certain amount of sense, right? In in a to the kind of common person, like judges apply the law, shouldn't they be bound by what the law says or what the constitution says or what a statute says? Yeah, um, you know, there's a kind of almost common sense force it has that I think has helped give it some of the traction it has, alongside, of course, all the kind of efforts at. Um, spreading it through institutions and getting it taught in law schools and, you know, having judges and, you know, advocacy groups pushing for it. But um, it's a good question just because it's, you know, why does it serve reactionary ends, especially when it sort of uh, has a certain common sense appeal? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's important to note that sort of there's a through line in conservative legal analysis generally, which is their position that the law needs to be rooted in something, right? It needs to be tethered to something real. Uh, how do you prevent a judge from 
just kind of using their own policy preferences. Well, you bind them to the original meaning of the Constitution or you bind them to the text of the law. And any other approach, according to them, is just sort of arbitrary. And I think a big part of what made it so appealing was what you're describing, that they weren't just saying, here is our preferred position on the on the law and the Constitution. They're making this claim to objective correctness, right? They're saying, look, this is this is the proper way to interpret the law. This is the only way to ensure objectivity in the legal system. And the extent to which that line of argument was successful in penetrating the collective consciousness of the legal profession, I mean, can't really be overstated. Uh, you'll see it manifest mm. across all the different conservative uh, frameworks from originalism to textualism to less popular stuff like law and economics, right? This this idea that the law has concrete answers or can be solved. Um, as to why they are conservative, um, with originalism, I think it's simple enough. It prevents the imposition of progressive ideas on onto the Constitution, right? Um, and essentially limits, you know, what, what the Constitution does is grant infinite power to the states, uh, theoretically, and then carve out certain certain things that the states can't do, and then does the inverse with the federal government, right? That's the uh, only it gives them the federal government specific powers, and the federal government can't do anything else. So the more narrowly you interpret it, the broader um, the broader you're in- interpreting states' rights. And that, that in like a, a microcosm is why um, conservatives gravitated towards these sorts of analyses initially. But yeah, I, I think in general, it, there, it's a combination of things. You know, with something like textualism, it really hampers the ability of Congress to pass meaningful legislation. That hampers um, uh, progressive ends. And in general, though, I mean, it's important to realize that this isn't necessarily uh, something that aids conservatives. It frequently doesn't. They have sort of constructed an analysis of it that is not particularly consistent, but just so happens to track the conservative project uh, at just about every turn. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to add that to Peter's uh, point, um, just that, like, you know, I think probably 80 or 90 percent of like constitutional or, or statutory interpretation cases that come before courts are pretty easy. You know, you're not going to really have like much difference across like interpretive methodologies or anything like that. It's the tough cases where it matters. And in those cases, it's often the case that, you know, the text or the history of the Constitution doesn't give you a clear answer. And you're, you're no more tied down as an originalist or a textualist, uh, than you would be as a purposivist or, a, you know, a living constitutionalist or whatever, right? Like, like at the end of the day, there's just a certain level of value judgment that goes into this stuff, right? And that's part of judging. But, you know, they want to deny that. What's the difference between originalism and textualism? How are they related? Originalism, uh, like I had mentioned, but I'll, I'll restate, is just the uh, – it's generally limited to the Constitution and is the idea that interpretation of the Constitution should be um, based on either the original intent of the Constitution or the more popular formulation now is the original meaning of the Constitution, um, which is like how, how, how the public would understand it to, um, to have read – uh, textualism is a uh, a statutory analysis framework for the most part, meaning that the best way to interpret uh, statutes, actual written laws, is by 
prioritizing the text, which can mean a, a bunch of different things, but generally speaking, just means you read the text fairly literally uh, as sort of your, as sort of step one, and then work from there. Right. The, the, you always know a textualist decision is coming down when, like, the first paragraph is like a dictionary definition of words. Yeah. <laughs> which right. Is, like, right. Yeah. <laughs> which is like not a joke. That's like a staple of textual analysis <laughs> is busting out the dictionary. Right. And there's sort of an idea that, like, Antonin Scalia um, is associated with, like, this kind of tripartite, like, set of, set of ideas like textualism, originalism, and judicial constraint. Yeah, I mean, I, I would certainly he, – he managed to sort of tie himself to it almost as, like, a branding operation rather than rather, – because I, I, he wasn't – you know, I think the – the foremost scholar uh, on the seminal work on originalism was done by Robert Bork, uh, who's you know the famously disastrous uh, confirmation hearing in the eighties. But coming soon, listeners, stay tuned. <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. His uh, his I think his he published a book on originalism in nineteen seventy three. I want to say maybe seventy two, um, and that became the sort of uh, the what the initial shot across the bow or whatever uh, in the. In academia, Scalia certainly uh, was came on the backs of that and was just sort of like a firebrand who managed to um, make himself the focal point of a lot of these discussions. Michael, when we were planning for this, you had said you were delving into some of the history more. So if originalism and, and textualism and these kind of associated ideas begin as a backlash to the war in court, um, you know, you have a, a early book or law review article from Bork in the early 70s, you know, kind of Scalia picks up the mantle. Um, you know, he's, of, of course, appointed to the Supreme Court by uh, Reagan in the 1980s. Right. Like, how do you, how did it kind of move from the, basically an intellectual movement, a set of ideas maybe held by a relatively small group of people to, you know, the Federal Society given Donald Trump a list of judges right. to appoint or, or you know, just kind of the long march through the institutions. How did they do that? How did it move from, again, a set of ideas to this really powerful, um, influential school of thought that has had a huge effect on the country? Right. Well, Peter talked about like the, the development of the substance of right wing legal thought as response to the Warren court. And I think you could also frame their, their approach to political change as a response to the New Deal, um, which sort of professionalized politics, right? It created like this vast network of bureaucrats and it increased the importance of, uh, people with, you know, secondary education degrees, lawyers in agencies, not just on the court. Um, and all of a sudden there was like a big premium on, uh, you know, having a foothold in academia, in all these institutions, um, which was an avenue for political change that didn't require electoral change, right? And it turned out, um, even winning elections wasn't enough, right? Because Nixon, appointed four Supreme Court justices. One of them turned out to be Blackman, who was like, great. Like, thanks. Thanks, Nixon. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but that didn't usher in quite the change they expected. And, and there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, um, they didn't have a, they didn't have a ready supply of reliably conservative justices, obviously. They didn't have a ready supply of reliably conservative clerks for those justices. They didn't have conservative, you know, public interest groups bringing lawsuits um, that would help them, you know, reach the sort of legal conclusions they wanted. You know, the court 
uh, only has so much control over uh, the cases before it. So there was, I think, a realization that um, they needed to be thinking more broadly and looking for other approaches. And the Federalist Society, I think, is, you know, their their biggest success, not just in the law, I think it's arguably the biggest success, uh, you know, of the conservative movement generally looking for non-electoral uh, levers of change. Um, and it started, it started as like a way of like sticking it to the fucking libs is, is what it was. There's a few right. <laughs> disgruntled conservatives at Yale Law who were like tired of being like sneered at when they, you know, raised their hand in class. <laughs> they wanted to like, they wanted Antonin Scalia and other sort of big name academics to come to Yale and stick it to their professors. And, and that's like, that's, they say it. They, they wanted to make their professors feel uncomfortable. They wanted to knock them off their high horse. They wanted them to lose their confidence that they had like a sort of stranglehold on, you know, legal answers. And this sort of took off like conservatives loved it. Uh, this conference was super successful. Scalia himself loved it and got very involved in fundraising and organizing. And this is the early 80s at this point? 1982. And within a year, they had raised $100,000 in, in modern day cash from a f- handful of like big conservative legal foundations, the Owen uh, Foundation, uh, the Skyfe, uh, what is it, the Institute? Maybe Bradley. Yeah, I think so. I think so. But yeah, a- and they were talking about uh, we need to start founding chapters. We need a professional wing. It it got very organized very quickly. Um, they saw an opportunity and an interest. And that like started to create like this sort of judicial network, right? Which is what sort of blossomed mm-hmm. into what we have today. They've been very careful to, they don't file briefs at the Supreme Court. They don't lobby Congress um, on bills. The organization tries not to take specific policy positions because they don't want to piss off their members. They say they're a debate club so that everybody can come and argue about the takings clause or whatever. And like all this stupid disagreements mm-hmm. that conservatives have amongst themselves that they think is like really smart and really, uh, <laughs> you know, so deep. And then they tell you that like, well, that we're not really engaged in anything political. Sure. It's great that we've, you know, we can place judges and uh, clerks and professors, but that's just a side effect, you know, of our, you know, wonderful debate club and the exchange of ideas, which is like the equivalent of somebody, I don't know, like shooting a bank shot in basketball and then trying to tell you that like, oh, I wasn't trying to make it in. I was aiming at the backboard. It's crazy <laughs> that the ball went in the hoop. <laughs> Whoa. To be just as clear as possible, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Thomas, Roberts, Alito, and Coney Barrett were all Federalist Society members. That's right. So that yeah. the, the new six-person conservative majority on the court, all of them were Federalist Society members. That's right. And in fact, the keynote speakers at their big annual event for the last four years, it reverse chronological order, Alito, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Thomas. They, it's, they are deeply influential and uh, intertwined with the organization. Amazing. Right. And, and Bill Barr gave like a ridiculous speech at one of their conventions also recently where he was basically like, you know, calling for right wing autocracy practically. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's a member, of course, uh, pretty much any major figure in the right are a member. And one of the reasons is like, um, like I said, there was back in the seventies and the eighties, what they learned was, uh, you know, you can't trust 
uh, people to sort of just be honest about their positions. But like there was a stigma attached to being a conservative and there's a stigma attached to being in the Federalist Society. And so the more someone was willing to bear that stigma, the more somebody was not just in the Federalist Society, but showing up to meetings and like wearing it proudly around campus um, or as a professor, uh, the more you could trust that they're like, they're going to be real. When you appoint them, you're, they're not going to be drifting like Blackman or Souter or any of those guys, right? Like it's a, it's a badge of honor and a way uh, to advance, right? It's a career advancement opportunity. Right. I wanted to make a point about um, just going back to like originalism kind of blowing up and, and becoming um, super popular, um, you know, through Scalia, through Bork, um, through I'd say like the late 80s. And, you know, something we want to do, something we try to do on our show is like connect the conservative legal movement in the United States with the the conservative political project more broadly, right? And I think you can't really, um, you know, what we're, what we're trying to say, like over all across our episodes, all the cases we cover, is that like the conservative political project has used the judiciary and used theories about laws, objectivity, uh, laws, formalism, um, you know, namely originalism, in order to to, to sort of reify conservative policy preferences and ensure conservative political outcomes, right? And so it's not it's not a coincidence that um, originalism is kind of um, blowing up in popularity in the late '80s, uh, you know, towards the end of the Reagan administration, when there's a real sort of cynicism about government. Right. Sort of uh, spreading across the United States, an idea that like you don't rely on government to do stuff for you. You don't rely on government to support you and how that goes hand in hand with like a judicial idea. What Scalia talks about all the time of judicial constraint that like we don't act. We're not that our role is not uh, is not to to deliver wins to to the common person. Something I just I wanted to add really quick about the Federal Society is that it was very successful, very quick, but it's like fundraising doubled in the late eighties after uh, Robert Bork's nomination. Since since we are going to come up to come talk about that, it's worth noting that after his nomination failed, and you know, like I said, it's a big network of people, and Bork was one of a, the early backers of the Federal Society, and they all knew him. He had a bunch of friends. He was like well liked. In those circles. So the fact that, you know, I was reading somebody, one of them compared it to like a, a mother or father, you know, getting nominated to the Supreme Court and then not getting it. That experience that we can all relate to. Right? Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh-huh. he, he became a martyr for the cause. That might be the place to go here. I mean, because it sounds like the sort of history we're talking about is we've got we've got the Warren Court and it's sort of like instantiation of civil rights in, in, in judicial opinions. And then there's a reaction to that across the conservative movement. There's in the 70s, this effort to pack the court with conservatives, it doesn't work out because they don't have enough of a of a beachhead in like in conservative in in the legal academy. And so then they established the federal society to solve for that problem. And then that sort of takes off in the 80s. And then we get to Bork, who is, as you've as you've identified, kind of the the godfather of some of these ideas and the sort of the sort of perfect iteration of the kind of judge that they're trying to install who's totally on board with the whole program. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. But there's a degree to which like his disastrous uh, his disastrous confirmation hearings were were sort of um, a reckoning, I think, for the conservative legal project. So just to kind of go back and and just describe how Bork comes into uh, the national spotlight. So he's nominated by by President Reagan to the Supreme Court in 1987. Uh, he's supposed to replace Justice Lewis Powell, who uh, was retiring at the time. And Robert Bork uh, is a guy who, you know, earlier in his career had publicly stated that he supported the rights of southern states to impose a poll tax. Super chill dude. Like a really cool chill dude. Yeah. Uh, he also Look, he also. If you haven't um, seen what he looks like, he looks like a he looks like an ogre. Um, he looks exactly like his <laughs> yeah. views. So um, he was not made for television hearings, broadcasts on television. <laughs> That's right. You could imagine someone like you see that in a in a movie now, and then the actor who, who portrays him is like, "Yeah, I had to go like through like seven hours of prosthetics every day." Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So it, it, and you know he's he's um, he's writing about originalism. He's very excited about originalism, and um, you know, and he, he's saying he explicitly he wants to roll back civil rights uh wins of from the Warren Court era um you know he he would like to re- um he would like to overturn Roe v. Wade, that kind of thing. And so, um, when he, when Reagan nominated him, you know, a bunch of, uh, liberal organizations and then Democrats in the Senate really sort of organized around opposing and, and eventually killing his nomination. And, you know, it, it's not the first time that like Supreme Court confirmation hearings, uh, were political theater, but certainly like to the mainstream media and the public, I think it was the first time seeing it so intensely. And, um, and, you know, over the course of, of the confirmation hearings, I think it's a real like, crystallization of the conservative legal movement and the moment. Um, and, and that's because Robert Bork and the, um, and the, you know, conservative legal thinkers at the time didn't know how to, um, how to sell that ideology to the public yet. He was saying the quiet parts out loud, right? Mm. He called the conservative, he called the conservative legal movement a movement, right? He mm. made, he said that this is, this was political. Uh, he recognized that it was part of broader conservative political, you know, machinations and, and he got so behind the idea of legal formalism and, and that, you know, law is just a set of formal objective rules. Um, and, you know, that, that you sort of see like this stark abstraction in his words about mm-hmm. adjudicating like right. you know he, he's asked um he's asked what's supposed to be a softball question in the confirmation hearings about why he wants <laughs> to be a supreme court justice and he says because it would be an intellectual feast and i think like <laughs> i think like you know it was it was a reckoning moment for conservatives to the degree that like today we don't talk about john roberts or even samuel alito as as members of a movement right as part of of a of a, mm-hmm. of a political project and law schools teach and people broadly think that like justices don't have specific ideologies at all except yeah, except yeah. except how they think the constitution should be interpreted Right. Yeah. And and is and is this kind of where the trend of simply not really answering questions uh, was that one of the lessons learned? Like that's right. Yeah. 
the the origins of Amy Coney Barrett saying, I don't know if presidents should uh, cede to the peaceful transfer of power, or I don't know if climate change is real, just kind of not answering questions, especially around Roe v. Wade. Is that where this comes from? Yes. Yes. Um, 100%. I mean, the, I think the way we, I, we described this in, in prep was like, this is like, this is the last honest confirmation hearing, right? Where right. people were asking questions and he was just answering them. Um, right. Right. And then they were like, oh, you can't do that. We're actually at a point where something like Roe v. Wade is just a little too dangerous, a little too third railish. And now, yeah, I mean, you know, you had John Roberts, um, A, dodging every question, but B, also, openly presenting himself uh, as the umpire, right? Who's just calling balls and strikes. That's what he said in his confirmation hearing, really distancing himself conceptually from the idea that he was playing a political role at all um, or had any affiliation with these actors who might be construed as playing a political role. Um, All of that traces back to Bork. And it's also why you see these like like the sexual harassment fights, right? Because right. Um, which um, is not that they're invalid or anything along those lines, but it does seem bizarre to a degree that you um, have these long drawn out battles over like sexual harassment allegations and no one's ever like, by the way, what are you going to do once you're on the court? Right. I mean, that's it was like a <laughs> right. very small right. p- part of the Thomas hearings. So kind of in lieu of talking about substantive legal uh, thinking, we've had to go to character or, mm-hmm. you know, issues right. yeah. about the, the, the particular nominee, their background, their history, their, their, again, their character, rather than talking about what they actually want to do as a judge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So one of the lessons of the Bork hearings for the conservative legal movement was let's be a lot more coy about what we're trying to accomplish Mm -hmm. and um, how we talk about what excites us about it. Um, But, but, but what else? I mean, how, what did they learn from, from Bork moving forward? And, and, and why was it that liberals were able to, to Bork Bork as the now as a verb when they haven't been able to Bork others? Conservatives certainly um, learned some things from the Bork confirmation hearings, but one thing that they uh, took from it, absolutely, is that um, is just more of that victimhood complex, right? Mm-hmm. That that they were being mm-hmm. attacked for um, for this uh, neutral for these neutral principles that they um, that they wanted to apply to the law. You know, the the idea of victimhood um, uh, is so central to the. Cons- conservative mind, right? Um, and so it, just to say that, like, you know, Mitch McConnell at the time of the Bork confirmation hearings, he said that Democrats would rue the day that they, um, that they tanked, <laughs> that they tanked the nomination. Mm-hmm. And you see, like, it, since then, he's spent, you know, now a good, what, over three decades making Democrats pay for it. Yeah. I, I was just to say, it's worth pointing out that the Bork got a vote with the full Senate. Yeah. He lost an up or down vote. Yeah. Bipartisan. Yeah. Some Republicans voted against him. So it was uh, Democrats did control the Senate, I believe. But he they gave him an up or down vote and he lost it. So it, it is a little different than, say, what Mitch McConnell did to Merrick Garland. Absolutely. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit on our Joe Biden episode, and I don't want to, like, sing his praises too much. Um, but there was like one of the one of the flashpoints in Bork's hearing was when Biden tried to pin him down on not just Roe v. Wade, but like uh, contraception, right? Like the the legal foundation for Roe v. Wade was the was a prior case that said like, look, you know, you you're you have a right 
to do what you want in your home, and that includes contraception. And Bork was just like, I mean, he just didn't know how to get out of saying what was his obvious position that is very unpopular, which is that that right. law was bad and wrong, and instead right. found himself saying that he had like never thought about it. And Biden, you know, was like, Are you fucking kidding me? You're like, you've been an academic for decades and you've been and and you've never thought about it like we're supposed to believe that and and he looked you know he looked like he was hiding something and he looked like he what he was hiding was like a profoundly unpopular position um and, and i think that hurt him a lot like first person accounts from republicans uh was that that hurt him a lot right that, that mm. helped them sway them that's also something that they took away from this um how do you talk about these sort of cases, right. right, that are that are difficult to talk about. Um, it, it's not just Roe v. Wade. It was Brown v. the Board of Education at right. the time. Um, yeah. The originalist position on Brown v. Board was that it was incorrectly decided. That's come back, by the way. Mm-hmm. I think Amy, Amy Coney Barrett wouldn't wouldn't say that it was rightly decided, mm-hmm. right? That's right. Um, I I think that y- you had this sort of what was prior to Bork. Um, a much more intellectual movement, at least as it viewed itself, right? Mm-hmm. And so, when you when you have these intellectuals talking amongst themselves, they can they can say, "Look, yeah, Brown v. Board. I'm not sure about that one. You know, I think it was incorrectly decided." Um, but once it becomes a little more political, and once they see the need for political strategy, they start talking about these things differently. And what they sort of coalesced around is the idea of stare decisis, which is that which is precedent. The idea that once something has been precedent uh, established as precedent, it's sort of untouchable to a degree. And so what they would say is, look, Roe v. Wade, that's that's settled. That's you know, forget what I think about it in this sort of um, highfalutin intellectual way. You don't need to worry about that. That's already settled. So is Brown v. Board, and that's how they started talking about those cases. How do they tend to handle precedent? Because Scalia has the famous line where he said something like, I'm an originalist, I'm a textualist, but I'm not a nut. Meaning he wasn't going to take the Mm -hmm. premises of originalism to their logical (laughs) conclusions, which would render, you know, entire swaths of precedent illegitimate based on, you know, an original understanding of the Constitution. Constitution. So how do they... And and that was a major, to the extent Amy Coney Barrett's jurisprudence was actually discussed substantively, that was one... She probably goes even further than Scalia, who she clerked for, in um, kind of... uh, her willingness to overturn precedent, maybe at least she signaled that in a, in, a, in a law review article or two. So how does the how do they kind of square the fact that their theory of of judging in the Constitution, you know, would invalidate large swaths of modern jurisprudence? I think it'll, it's useful to take a step back here, but the short of it is that they don't really reckon with it at all. You know, the basic critique of originalism and other legal formalistic frameworks is very simple. The entire philosophy is sort of predicated on agreeing to and applying certain rules to the facts. Um, but those rules are not very clear and they're not consistently adhered to, right? So if you're, if you're talking about originalism, for example, um, you know, the, the process of ripping a clear meaning for a constitutional provision out of the pages of history is about as far from like a measurable science as you're <laughs> right. ever going to get, right? right. Uh, we did an episode on D.C. v. Heller, which is the case that found an individual right to bear arms in the Second Amendment. And the majority opinion is Scalia doing this, like, tortured, selective interpretation of the Second Amendment that functionally overturns a case from uh, the, the 1930s, U.S. v. Miller. 
And in dissent, you have Justice Stevens, the liberal, sort of doing the same thing and coming to a different conclusion. And like, just to give you a flavor, give your listeners a flavor, um, Scalia says that the term well-regulated militia in the Second Amendment wasn't referring to an actual militia, but was just a way of talking about like the body of citizens that could in theory comprise a fighting force. (laughs) And he like very selectively cites some sources for this. But like no one was interpreting the Constitution like this before like 1990. (laughs) I mean, it was just it's 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 completely novel. Um, And it sort of reminds me of what um, the historian uh, Eric Hobsbawm called uh, invented tradition which is like the idea that there are these political and cultural practices or ideas that are viewed as longstanding but are in fact recently constructed. And a large part of originalism is sort of ascribing sacredness to what are in reality fairly novel conceptions of how to interpret the Constitution. And there's like there's a real bad faith element there, right? Um, And it's yes, it's like it's partially just the idea that the absurdity of the idea that history can provide clear answers. But a lot of it is just something that borders so closely on fabrication that um, it's not really worth digging in too much, uh, right. too deep. And, you know, when when they confront something like precedent, um, to say they do it inconsistently is almost to, like, undersell it. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. They... It is it is wielded in such obvious bad faith by, frankly, by both sides of the aisle that, like... I genuinely don't think talking about it is useful. Like, I, mm-hmm. not not just like on this podcast, but in general. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just it's something right. that is right. just yeah. not applied consistently by a single person. Mm-hmm. You can go through and identify moments of hypocrisy or not, but like, really fundamentally, originalism is is not a judicial philosophy that like really ex- like it doesn't really exist. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's, that's exactly that's, that's right. That's exactly They're right. They're not yeah. actually engaged in it as a as a good faith intellectual yeah, project. Yeah. The reason that it has the reputation that it does is not just because of the, what the conservative legal movement has been able to accomplish propaganda-wise, but because liberal jurists have a seat, sort of conceded to, that it is. They have sort of yeah. played along with the idea that it that it's that it consists of a of a coherent intellectual project which you can disagree with or not. Mm-hmm. I. I I, f- I forget who it is. Um, it may have been Eric Siegel, who's a law professor down in, in Georgia, or Jack Balkin. But 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 there was a law professor who wrote an article um, that I read recently that was just like um, sort of mocking uh, other academics. And he's like, look, you know, we have all this data that shows that judges aren't actually doing – you know, originalism as you describe it, right? Like in your <laughs> right. academic works. So what are you even doing? Right? Like what, what's go, what, what's the social purpose of your work? Because you're, you know, coming up with these whole, like, you know, elaborate academic schemes and structures to explain these decisions. And then, but that's not what's happening, right? That's, that's, that's not what's yeah. happening in the court yeah. at all. Right. So it's like this. You know, like navel gazing exercise about like how smart we are. It's all backfill. Yeah. One of the things that's interesting now to me is that people like Adrian Vermeule, he he argues for this common good constitutionalism, and what he's suggesting is that originalism has outlived its utility for social conservatives in particular. And of course, people like him point to especially like. Gorsuch's decision in the Bostock 
case, which was the case that decided that trans people should be protected by Title VII. So what, so what he's saying is that like originalism as conceived as a real good faith conservative legal theory has outlived its utility because now it's not always being decided um, in our favor. And I remember also reading back then Josh Hawley, another another friend of the pod, um, <laughs> gave a speech on the Senate floor in June 2020 about that decision, where he said, this decision and the majority who wrote it represents the end of something. It represents the end of the conservative legal movement or the conservative legal project as we know it. After Bostock, that effort as it, was exist- as it existed up to now is over. I say this because if textualism and originalism give you this decision, meaning the decision that trans people um, have rights at work, if you can invoke textualism and originalism in order to reach such a decision, an outcome that fundamentally changes the scope and meaning and application of statutory law, then textualism and originalism and all of those phrases don't mean much at all. So this is sort of like in conflict with what we've been describing is, if, is the idea that like if people believe in good faith in some of these ideas, then they might arrive at conclusions that don't comport with at least social conservatism. Yeah. It's interesting that Bostock gets paraded around as this um, manifestation of like deeply held held principles on the part of like the conservatives when I view it actually as like the complete opposite. Um, Title seven is a law that says you can't discriminate on any, any against anyone um, on the basis of their sex. And the principle of it is that that would uh, cover that would, according to the decision, cover gay and transgendered people too, right? It covers LGBT people because discrimination against them is functionally discrimination on the basis of sex. And that's very simple, and it's actually a textualist decision, um, which is why a lot of people— And Gorsuch wrote the— That's right. He writes a very textualist majority uh, opinion. Now, a lot of people pointed at that and said, look, look at Gorsuch and Roberts um, joining the libs out of out of pure, unfiltered principle— but the real story to me right, right. was the the remaining justices, um, because there are seven others, mm. and all of them flipped on what their usual mode of analysis would have been. Um, you had the uh, the three conserv- remaining conservatives in Alito, Thomas, and Kavanaugh, all taking the sort of anti textualist side, where they were like, "Well, look, this isn't really." This isn't really what the legislature uh, would have meant with this. A little bit pur- purposivistic, and uh, that generally would deviate would be a deviation from their usual, uh, te- uh, at least their ostensible uh, textualism. And you had the the liberals going text first, and that is a deviation from their from their principles. Uh, you know, I don't think of that as a, as a si- like a sign that 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 we are transcending the ideological era that we were previously in. My instinct with that was that Gorsuch is surprisingly empathetic to the plight of LGBT people, as long as that plight is not conflicting with religious principles. And that's 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 what I took from that. I I, I cannot believe how overblown the reaction on all sides was to that case. Right. That's very interesting. I, I think that also sort of puts the lie to um, what what we were talking about earlier with the Federalist Society holding itself out as like a debate club with like a rich and varied ideology with a lot of different viewpoints. And then the second there's any deviation, it's like, well, this is 
fucking, this is the end of the world. This is, <laughs> right, right, yeah. our, right. Our yeah. movement right. is over. Like, <laughs> right. you know, right. what happened to the debate? What happened to the, you know, rich, you know, in-depth disagreements? Right, like Holly was a FedSoc product. Yeah, for sure. And clerked for yeah. Roberts mm-hmm. and... Suddenly he's like, nope, fuck it. I'm taking my ball and going home. I don't want to be involved in this right. rich, intellectually serious debate right. anymore. And, mm-hmm. and yeah. rather than the end of the conservative movement, I do think what <laughs> this is what conservative victory looks like. Conservative victory is where like those random fault lines uh, actually show themselves a, a little bit, right? Like where – um, we're at a point where there are enough conservatives on the court that their idiosyncrasies and their, their slightly different approaches to the law might actually change a few cases outcomes and they're not going to be like always traveling in a pack. Um, but, but that's, that's, that only happens when you have six votes on the court and you have a robust right wing legal establishment that's bringing very extreme right wing cases. So as we kind of think about what the effects of the the rise of the conservative legal movement has been and their installation of, you know, now six people on the Supreme Court who kind of came up through that movement or are are attached to it in some way, what are the major areas where they really had a bad effect on American life and American politics? You know, why does the Supreme Court suck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, broad categories, uh, civil rights, right. uh, <laughs> voting rights, labor law, workers' rights, mm-hmm. reproductive rights. Right. Some of the most interesting damage done is probably in their interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause, which is actually in a lot of ways very non-originalist. Um, the Equal Protection Clause is a clause that uh, was passed with the 14th Amendment in, I think it was 1870, around there. And uh, it says that all people, you know, need to be treated equally under the law. And obviously at the time, you know, we're 50 years prior to women voting. We are nearly 100 years prior to the Civil Rights Act of 1963. And so what we've, you know, it's quite clear that the intent and the uh, public understanding of the constitutional uh, amendment at the time was not to grant equality to women and minorities in any meaningful sense. Um, it was something that was to be sort of uh, weaponized against the South, right, and in the wake of the Civil War. And the sort of irony in how conservatives treat this is that they go way farther than any originalist interpretation would ever take them, right? They, they of course, say that it protects women. How could you not, right? Oh, that would be, that would be awkward to have to admit that we are uh, directly adhering to the uh, misogyny and racism and whatever of the old guard. Um, but they also stop well short of where it could be. And, you know, one of, one of the things we've touched on many times on the podcast is just how powerful a clause saying that people need to be protected, uh, uh, equally by the law could be in, in the right hands, right? Um, instead they've taken, uh, they've taken a, a lot of strides to ensure that that never happens, uh, while still abandoning originalism because taking the originalist position is just a little too thorny. Right. An area of law we haven't mentioned, sorry, that uh, that we didn't mention, but that has been, like, devastated, I think, is, um, like, just democratic norms. Um, campaign finance, access to the ballot, uh, all that stuff is – they've, you know, over the last 
40 years, the, the Supreme Court has made our country profoundly less democratic. Yeah, so. it's really, it's really striking. Um, to see that kind of mindset and and style of thinking at work in the broader conservative movement too, as you said, they they don't go all the way back. Right. You know, they wouldn't say that it doesn't include women, but and you see this all the time in, on the right when they you know they all act like they would have supported the Civil Rights Act um, in the sixties, um, but but right. even though no one, even at the very magazines they write for, no one at the time actually did that. So they, it's this really incoherent way of thinking where they they kind of grant a certain level of progress, but don't take that to its logical conclusion, but nor do they take the reactionary view to its logical conclusion. Yeah. I, I mean, look, if you, if, if you ask them like what their project is, they say that like, oh, we want, you know, judicial restraint. We don't want judges making law. Um, we want them interpreting the law or whatever. And, and you'd say, well, like, well, what are you talking about? Don't judges always interpret the law? And they'd say, no, the crazy liberals were making law all the time. And you'd be like, well, what are you talking about? When? And it, what's the answer? Brown v. Board, Roe v. Wade, <laughs> like Miranda, like the things they're reacting to right. are profoundly popular. So they have to, they can't say, well, look, yeah, we, we, we don't want to roll back. Uh, we want to roll back Brown v. Board, but they do, right? That's what their movement is rooted in. Like that's, that it's his animating principle, but they can't say it. And one thing we haven't dug into, uh, very much, but it's, it's important to note the initial originalists were, um, very tied to this idea of judicial restraint. And that actually came with like, some some amount of principle and they believed that if there wasn't a clear conflict between a law and the constitution it should not be struck down um as conservatives have gained power over the course of the subsequent 50 years they have uh, sort of quietly abandoned that right any perceived conflict with uh with between the constitution and and laws uh that they don't like results in those laws getting struck down uh, and you you've really seen although they still use the sort of rhetorical language that they used to about judicial restraint they've they've functionally abandoned yeah, no, it entirely it's a very radical court right now and has been for a while. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that where this always leads me and and Matt and I have had conversations about this before too is like w acknowledging that the conservative like hermeneutic approach to the law is is basically bullshit and they violate it whenever they want in order to achieve particular ends namely the maintenance of particular hierarchies and uh, <laughs> keeping things, uh, keeping people in power who are in power and keeping people under the boot who are already under the boot. That being said, what, what is the other side? Like what, what, what is liberal jurisprudence or what is left jurisprudence? What does that look like? What can you articulate? Is it possible to articulate a like normative or interpretive or some 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 combination of the two approach that would result in the Supreme Court and the judiciary in general making the sorts of decisions we want them to make. To quote the Big Lebowski, it's a, at least originalism is an ethos, <laughs> right? Like it's it's a, it's at least it's at least a theory. Um, right. And and I was struck too by you know when you mentioned the uh, District of Columbia versus Heller that John Paul Stevens' dissent kind of tried to out-originalism Scalia, right? right? So often often even the left or yeah. liberals, I don't know if you would consider Stevens in that category, but oftentimes it seems like we're, you know, 
almost arguing on their terrain. I think that's right. Um, I think that we don't hear about the response or the alternative to originalism. Like, what is a leftist interpretation of the law? What are the leftist theories about um, about um, about what the law is and how um, and how it affects people? Um, and I think that, in large part, is because of is because of law schools and how much they've bought into <laughs> um, how much they've bought into originalism. And uh, just the just the the sort of um, the the industry and the uh, elitism that um, that flows from uh, from these these principles. Um, but I mean, there are alternative theories, right? Um, I mentioned up top that like our our kind of um, underlying philosophy when we're talking about cases is um, is legal realism, which you know just refers to the idea that. People should um, interpret the law while also considering, you know, the status quo, public policy, how people's material realities are affected by legal outcomes. Right. And more specifically, um, you know, there was a movement founded by a, a Professor Duncan Kennedy and others um, in, uh, I guess, the 1960s called Critical Legal Studies. And and the Critical Legal Studies movement kind of posits that that the legal materials like like written law and case law those aren't the only thing that determine like the outcome of legal disputes human beings do uh, and human beings are subjective and as judges sitting on a case they are sort of at best exercising their own uh personal ideas of fairness and policy preference onto that legal outcome um you know originalism it kind of holds that like if judges would use historical materials correctly then everything we need to know all the tools we need to like solve quote unquote a legal problem are obvious and objective whereas um in critical legal studies it's sort of this understanding that like there isn't a black and white right or wrong answer that you can divine from history and and there isn't a black and white right or wrong answer uh about what words in the constitution mean right like it's it's a recognition that like a lot of this stuff is vague because it was human beings uh designing it and and writing it and drafting it and it's human beings interpreting it and so law is 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 politics and legal decisions are a form of political decision right we don't have an interpretive framework that is uh, – and, and we don't pretend to. And that's, I think, one of the things that has left legal realism in the dust a little uh-huh. bit. Um, right. Because there is no sort of normative proposition. Um, if, I could, if I could provide one, it, it would be very simple. Um, you can incorporate context into your analysis of the law. I mean, it's it's like really as simple as that. Um, yeah. And I, I as sort of obvious as that sounds, that is something that is like in many corners rejected to at least some large degree. Um, and so I, I always try to think of like what would be like a simple and appealing way to project what we are proposing here. And I think that that is it. But at the same time, I think that um, we're always sort of um, on the defensive because what we're really doing is positing a descriptive critique saying, you know, like you said earlier, originalism doesn't actually exist. Um, and we need to acknowledge that and move forward. Right. And that's the real proposition where that leaves us obviously feels a little bit chaotic. Um, but I think that in reality, that is where we are anyway. Yeah. 
I, I feel like this discussion is incomplete without talking a little bit about the dominant ideology in law schools. Sure, please do. Because this is something our, our, that we've sort of elided, which is that like originalism uh, is is not like what you're taught for the most part in law school. No. Like that's that like conservative like legal thinking is still kind of it's taught as like a way to interpret the constitution alongside several others if you're the asshole in class who's constantly like quoting scalia uh you might get identified by a certain professor to like get you know into that track to go into the federal society and become a like le- conservative legal thinker but that you still put you in sort of like the minority in the sort of like hegemonic view of law school legal thinking Ab- absolutely Mm-hmm. So, so the the dominant ideology in law school is is something called like the legal process school of thought, and and that idea is that like right. look, if you read cases and you read statutes and you read the Constitution and you use basic rules of like logic and deduction and maybe a few interpretive rules that we'll write down and we'll call them canons of construction. Um, you can get answers and that's it and you don't need anything else and it's like algorithmic and the law will spit out answers and you don't need politics and you don't need personal value judgment um, and that's how it's taught. Right. The, the, the law is taught to students that way. You read cases, you find the holding of the case and then you are supposed to divine how that like will uh, you know apply to other sets of facts and spit out the right answer. And the thing about this is that it's predominantly liberals – um, who, uh, espouse this idea. And it's, it's sort of like this institutional idea, um, that like liberal outcomes, you know, will sort of naturally flow from like just good judging and good, our great constitution and good institutions. Um, so what you have is like the liberal side being like explicitly apolitical and, disavowing politics which is a which is a major problem <laughs> yeah i I think there's a very like March of history viewpoint here um, that has yeah. only sort of recently started to run up against reality which is why I do think in law schools you're like I'm just I'm just sort of eyeballing this, but it feels to me like you're going to start to see a little bit of a shift. Um, right. And but, you know, I, there is there is just sort of a sense in uh, when I went to law school, which was uh, a decade ago that, you know, yeah, you know, there's, you know, you have these sort of formalistic frameworks. Maybe they tend towards conservative outcomes in some regards, but like history will march on. Legislation gets more progressive, uh, right? And, and everything sort of flows with it accordingly. Uh, obviously not true. Obviously not true. No. Um, the, uh, I was going to say, what was I going to say? You, you guys will learn to cut Michael off, by the way. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding, Michael, go ahead. Um, you can cut any of this, obviously. Um, the, the right wing, uh, you know, they see their positions in uh, law schools um, as like the result of a hard-fought political victory, right? They've spent decades organizing to make this happen, to get their positions that they had to like fight for tooth and nail. Whereas there's like a sort of complacency for, for liberals. It's like the vast majority of people on faculty are already liberals and they hire more liberals. And you know, you, you're in this legal process school of thought and you view the idea of politics, you know, as being a part of this as distasteful. 
right? And so you're not really like meeting them on like the field of political battle, right? Like there's a political competition here, but there's only one team occupying the field. They might only make up 10% of the faculty or 15%, but if they're the only ones playing the game, they're, they're going to win. Yeah. Well, that leads me to another question that, um, so that I think follows from the idea of what a, a left or liberal alternative might be to originalism and the conservative legal movement, which is, uh, and I alluded to this at the very start of our conversation, so maybe this will be a, a good way to start winding down. But um, I think one of the real values your podcast provides is by, again, demystifying all this. But one of the things you emphasize again and again is that kind of this apolitical view of the Supreme Court is perpetuated by legal commentators in the media, right? The way the way the Supreme Court is covered, the way we tend to talk about the Supreme Court, the way we talk about these decisions reflects that dominant ideology that you're saying prevails in in elite law schools. So, what would your? I, I'm I'm interested in what like a like better coverage of the Supreme Court. What would that look like for you? Obviously, it would look like something like five to four. But, you know, um, yeah, it would look like a column with my name at the top of it. in the Washington <laughs> Right. Yes. <laughs> I totally endorse that. I was going to say cuss words. Yeah. <laughs> we, we need cuss words when we're talking about the Supreme Court. The Washington Post byline, the law boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just Peter, one name, Peter, the law boy. But yeah, but how, how would you, you know, sort of like a, a message to our listeners, if you would, what would you say to, to people just help them to understand the way we talk about the Supreme Court better? One, one thing, one um, dynamic that I see, not just in the media, but in interpersonal conversation about the law between lawyers and non-lawyers is a non-lawyer will react to the implications of a Supreme Court decision saying, you know, wow, that seems like it sucks for you know, immigrants, <laughs> workers, right. uh, LGBTQ right. people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a legal commentator or a lawyer, whoever, steps in and says, actually, you're misunderstanding what this discussion is really about, right? What it's really about is the interpretation of this law or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um Right. And it's like, no, you had it right the first time. Like the first guy was right. And um, you see this dynamic <laughs> right. in um, in legal media where mainstream, mainstream legal journalism either tacitly accepts or openly promotes like the ostensible legitimacy and ob- objectivity of the court. Um, mm-hmm. And there are many, many writers whose main MO is to sort of push back against creeping notions that the court is driven by ideology. Um, if you look at the case brought by Texas against the swing states that Biden won uh, <laughs> that was just thrown out uh, last week. Um, you know, the upshot of that case uh, is that everyone familiar with the law knew that it was going to get thrown out because like the Constitution, Texas was trying to sue these states saying that, you know, challenging their own state laws and um, the Constitution gives each state the right to run their own elections. So the idea that another state could just sue um, sort of runs contrary to the constitutional scheme. Mm-hmm. And that's very open and shut as far as these things go, especially because the conservatives on the court have like long been proponents of the idea that states can run their own elections. That's like a big part of how they have en- enabled voter suppression. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um but after this decision comes down, sort of predictably 9-0, uh, just throwing in the case out immediately, uh, there were several articles about how it got tossed out essentially like 
because the court is so principled, right? Um, and there, I, there was at least one that said, like, well, why did this case get thrown out? Because these, because the court is conservative. Right. And conservatives, like, believe in these principles. And it's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, right. So as if, thank goodness they're conservative. Right, as if, yeah. like, liberals were going to go the other way with it. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it's as if the court tossing out, like, these extremely frivolous cases is some considerable st- step forward for the project of seeking objectivity in the law. And I think the bottom line when you're reading this sort of media coverage is to remember that these types of pieces are fairly explicitly designed to push the discussion to be one that takes place within these sort of legal formalistic legal frameworks that they believe in rather than one that is about those frameworks, right? Um, rather than one that takes a step back and says, well, what is actually happening here? How can it possibly be that you have this like sharp division in the analysis of the law um, that splits perfectly along like partisan ideological lines a huge chunk of the time? Um, if in <laughs> fact what the law is, mm-hmm. is this like, you know, sort of algorithmic uh, interpretation of facts and circumstances that, you know, they get applied to the law and then um, the correct answer is, is uh, spit out. Uh, I, I think that a big part of what those legal journalists do is try to confine the discussion back to those frameworks. Like, well, is this, you know, about the, uh, you know, the interpretation of the text let's look at the text of the law or whatever like here let me let me explain to you like a lawyer what this case was about um you know and you're really explaining to people who are directly impacted by the court what what a court was actually about but what what they're what those journalists are talking about is incredibly abstract and detached from reality yeah Yeah. and it's it seems like that like people's first instinct that you that you sort of alluded to there like is more right than what they get kind of like disillusioned absolutely. of by this legal absolutely. journalism. Yes. Like the idea like, oh, well, there's a bunch of conservatives on the court who were appointed by conservative presidents and they share the conservative ideology of the people who appointed them. And for the most part, they're just going to do what those people ask them or wanted them to do in the first place. In certain circumstances like this one, it's so stupid that it wouldn't serve their interest to try That's to... Right do something else like ultimately the long-term project is better served by in this particular instance being like no this is complete bullshit and we can win (laughs) a little bit of credibility this way like whatever people's like first instinct as like sort of political beings in the world about like what they're doing is more right than what they get mystified by when they start reading like 100% legalistic journalism about like well you know if you think about originalism and textualism in this context there's almost like a, a when when you're saying well what if you asked a, a, a lay person like what was that case about and just you know picking a case like epic systems v lewis which we covered too and that's the case that uh, held that uh, you can't bring a class action that you that class action waivers and arbitration agreements are allowed right if you asked a lay person what that case was about they would say, well, I, you know, I, I can't sue my employer anymore in a class action, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And if you asked right. right. ask a lawyer what it was about, they'd be like, well, there's the no, Federal no. Arbitration Act and <laughs> you have, you know, and here's like, and, you know, and like which one of which one of those answers is more correct, right? It's obviously the <laughs> right. first guy. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, right. which I, I, I always try when people ask me what legal realism is um, in shorthand, I always will say something like, you know, law is only real to the extent that it intersects with actual human beings' lives, right? And everything else is abstraction that doesn't actually matter uh, in and of itself. And that's how I view the law. That's how we try to approach our cases. And I think that's 
what legal media consistently fucks up. Right. And, you know, I had in mind, too, every time one of these shitheads is appointed to the Supreme Court or nominated for the Supreme Court, we have people who are ostensibly Democrats, ostensibly liberals, write the op-ed saying, I will vouch for the fact that Amy Coney Barrett's actually a really fine person <laughs> and legal yeah. mind. Or fucking Noah Feldman. Yes. Or Gorsuch or Kavanaugh or whomever, you know? And then, and then in the case of Neil Cattell, you know, he's defending child slavery or, you know, slave labor <laughs> uh, uh, a few months later. But that's that's another aspect of this, just the people going to people people going to bat for the right wingers. Oh, you think he was defending child slavery, but it's really about like foreign yeah. torts and who can sue in American right, exactly. courts. But don't be, fucking, don't get mistaken it, about what that case is about. Right. right. <laughs> when I lived next to Joseph Goebbels, uh, he cleaned my gutters twice a week uh, out of the kindness of his. It's there's like fucking there's like it, there is a bizarre cottage industry a lot of it is Mm -hmm. driven uh, by practitioners who like will find themselves before the supreme court like neil catchall who's only who's recently famous uh for child slavery adjacent reasons um is now um is it was like previously on the he's a big time uh supreme court uh lawyer former obama obama solicitor general who would write these pieces when Gorsuch and Kavanaugh got nominated? He's like, this guy's actually pretty cool. Don't worry. Um, and when you think about someone like him doing it, it makes total sense. He's about to, he's like, they're going to get confirmed. I'm going to appear in uh-huh. front of them. I'm going to give them a big thumbs up and my shiny, dumb smile. And they're going to be like, there's Neil, my buddy. You know, um, it makes sense. Uh, it makes sense that they would want to write something like that. Why, like, you know, the fucking New York Times would want to publish it. I have absolutely no idea. This might be a sort of like just kicking a dead horse at this point. But like the thing that I started to think about originalism and textualism as we've been having this conversation is that the idea that it's a purely interpretive approach uncontaminated by the real forces that you guys are committed to incorporating into the way you think about judicial decisions, it's belied by the other half of our conversation, which is the very deliberate political strategy of building an institution like the Federalist Society, which is allied with the with the conservative movement, and which is trying to change the power relations within the academy, but also within kind of American politics in general. Like, they know that they're not just engaged in this purely interpretive project. And we know that because they're trying to take power within the institutions that they're in that they're involved in. Yeah. Now, look, the uh, the first the Federal Society's like first document was like a pamphlet from their uh, first conference, and it had a number of bullet points, sort of like laying out what they envisioned like a this sort of network could be. And one of them says conservatives have long bemoaned the fact that clerkships to prominent conservative jurists have got, often gone to people with liberal views. Similarly, it has been contended that far too many legal posts in governmental office. Uh, have been held by liberals under Republican administrations. Finally, it is generally acknowledged that there is an insufficient number of conservative law school faculty. Their express purpose is to gain political power. They want to be judges. They want to be political appointees. They want to staff agencies Uh so that they can effect political change, right? That's like their day one mission statement. I still can't believe they got $100,000. Like, we were... 
um, Michael and Ree and I were talking about this earlier, but like, how many people did you know in college who like started some like left lefty group? Right? Imagine just getting a hundred grand when you did it. Yeah. Like like students for Palestine. Oh yeah, here's here's a hundred right. grand from some Palestinian George Soros figure. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. yeah. No, I I once uh, calculated the money I lost by moving from right to left. It was substantial. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I bet. Well, no, okay, that's uh, Matt. That is a great point about like the Federalist Society and you know these conservative legal big thinkers. Like they know what they're doing, right? And it is, and it is just, um, it, and it's explicitly a, a, a political movement, right? And over the past, you know, say forty years or so, these political players have ascended, mm -hmm. right? Into uh, they've made a they've made huge amounts of Absolutely. money. They They've, uh, they've been appointed to, you know, like, be one of, what, the nine justices on the Supreme Court, like, probably in the top 20 most powerful people in the world, like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And so, and so it, there's an extent to which, like, the, the industry that flows from this and, and the, the people who are served by these ideolo uh, by these ideologies, it's, like, self-generating. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. It's, um, you know, one of the founders of the Federal Society was a guy named yes. Gene Meyer, Eugene Meyer. And his father was uh, Frank Meyer, who was the mm -hmm. National Review books editor, <laughs> right. you know, like arm in arm with Bill Buckley defending segregation right. in the right. South in the, you know, in the 50s and 60s. Um, so, so like it, it began, uh, that way. Like, you know, there's a reason they got this foundation money because Gene Meyer was, kind of conservative royalty right yes yeah there, i mean there's an extent to which um almost nothing on the right that sort of arose in the 70s and 80s was entirely organic right yeah. um it was it was it <laughs> yeah. was just it was sort of this uh this time when money and ideas were flowing on the right and uh if you had a good idea you got some good money and that was sort of how it went i was just say that goes back to the powell memo lewis powell Right where he he wrote a memo to like right wing business leaders saying you better start pony up money because you know if if we deploy it in this way or that way you know we can build the institutions to kind of take back the country but it was uh, you know that memo the Powell memo was just a it, kind of a, a blueprint for organizations like the Federal Society. There's a, an interesting thing that kind of flows from this, which is that like one right-wing school of thought in the law is like uh, called Law and Economics, um, which is like very prominent, especially yes. in the University of Chicago, um, but is like now sort of everywhere. Um, right. But that sort of like that, that started earlier than the 70s, but it really took off in the 70s. And one of the reasons it became very prominent is precisely because there was money flowing, but there wasn't a lot of institutions in which to flow yet, right? Like think tanks didn't really exist then. These right-wing organizations like either didn't exist or were very young. And so it was like one of the only games in town. So it was a few guys who were like really pushing law and economics and they soaked up a ton of corporate money to like make fellowships and to make to to create little um right seminars for law professors or judges to come learn economics and and how to do an economic analysis of law. Yeah, which by the way, um, I, I did take law and economics, and the main thing I took away from it was like, if you're a professor that is neither good enough at law or economics to teach that's, either that's of right. them individually, <laughs> don't worry, you can teach law and economics. That's right. It, it does strike me though; it's okay that we didn't talk about law and economics as much because we we we've done an episode 
on the Chicago school where we did get into it a little bit more with uh, Marshall Steinbaum. But but it does strike me that it's interesting that that law and economics advises jurists to think about the like efficiency consequences of of legal decision making like that whatever you do you should be yeah. thinking about what's the effect on markets which is like a thing that extends the you know like jurisprudential thinking beyond texts and original and yeah. original ideas yeah, and, it, and 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 yes. and it's sort of like it's like okay so there's been made space in legal academia academia for thinking about the effects of judicial and legislative decision making on markets but not on people, people. that's right <laughs> not that's not right. on distribution not on political economy yeah that's that's exactly right I, I mean, yeah. There's there's obviously some tension. There's there's actually a ton of you know a ton of tension between the like things like textualism and a lot of other um, right. sort of doctrines that have emerged on the right. Um, and all, um, but but the sort of I think I mentioned this earlier, but the sort of overlap is that law and economics still sort of presents it as like law is something to be solved, right? That you can um, and there was there was a time in like the eighties and nineties where any conservative judge had like one or two paragraphs in their opinion about how this would affect the fucking markets. And mm-hmm. you could just see it like a clerk would write it and it felt completely detached from the rest of the opinion. And you were like, what was that? You know, and right. that that was like the influence of law and economics. Um but yeah, I think that's right that there is um I mean you see the same trend now when in for example labor cases the conservative right. judges will often like openly talk about the interests of management <laughs> as if they are right. like of particularly concern of particular concern um without really addressing the obvious the obvious counterweight well we might be ready we might be ready to wrap it up yeah oh oh wait oh wait i was gonna, i wanted to tell one story go for it and this is important because we were talking about the the rise of the federalist society and i have one story that can sort of illustrate how the left uh liberals and the left failed to create a counterweight oh, uh, right. i was reading yes. a book review of a book on the federalist society <laughs> and um, I, I'm reading their book review, and the and the person reviewing the book is like, "Hey, this is a good book on the Federalist Society." But what it doesn't uh, explain is how they got <laughs> to be so powerful. And I wish they would have described that because I am the president of the American Constitution Society, which is like supposed to be the liberal, the liberal counterweight to the Federalist Society. And here you had the fucking president of it being like, I was looking for answers in this book uh, in 2014, but I could not find any. So uh, we're, st- we're still going to be way behind the ball here. Sorry, everyone. That, that is a good place to end yeah. for us because we we often do have these conversations on the podcast where we describe like the intricacy of the right wing pipeline and how they've built this you know whole ecosystem to normalize their ideas and incorporate those with grassroots movements and blah 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 and then at the end of it we go and like and what does the left doing like how do we, right. we can right. we do that yeah. can we do that too yeah. how do, right i there's like a legit we have a legitimate claim to being like the most prominent proponents of legal realism in the world right now. <laughs> like, right that is yeah. that is not a statement about the popularity of our yeah. podcast yeah, you guys right. it's been really lovely doing this with you but that is still so fucking pathetic right <laughs> you're you're all so smart but nonetheless fuck yeah yeah I, i'm not putting it on my resume like that's 
embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> Have you, any of you read any of Bork's post-Borking books? Well, like slouching towards Gamora or, or whatever. <laughs> I have not. When I was I a not. when I was a young conservative, I read Slouching Towards Gamora. I meant to mention this earlier, but um, it begins with juxtaposing the lyrics from a Perry Cuomo like love song. Perry Cuomo love song with a rap song. <laughs> oh my god! And it's it's really shockingly horrible. And the only line from that book I remember is that he described rap as nothing more than inarticulate rage. God, poor <laughs> god! I really read that book, and you know, I mean, we really dodged a bullet with yeah. that one. Yeah, we did. It, yeah, that guy's an all time piece of shit. Yeah, really is. Um, but think about how. Yeah. Wait, he's alive, right? Bork's alive. No, he died in 2012. Uh, yeah. What? Yeah. I could have sworn he was alive. Oh, I'm fucking it up. Who am I confusing him with? Oh, my God. And he made me feel like it was okay to be weird. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was just feeling happy that he would have seen Biden elected, but now I don't even get that. (laughs) Alas, no. Um, Well, should we wrap it up? Thank you, everyone. This was great. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you. The crossover event of the decade. That's, that's right. right. That's right. Engineer, engineered by podcast guru Leon Nafok. Yeah, that's right. So oh, yeah, thanks, Dan. I was hoping that he would come in and do some ads for like a machine that like puts you to sleep and hydrates you at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely in his wheelhouse. Yeah, that is. Yeah, I, I love doing your podcast when you say, "Let's go to an ad," and then it's Leon saying, "Do you hate drinking water?" <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you all so much for coming on, Rhiannon, Peter, Michael. This has been so fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, bye-bye. Oh,